0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. When I think about the good luck you gave me, I cry like a baby or like it's the end of the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. And if you give us 60 minutes, Perhaps indeed. We'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. All you have to do is make a request and you're in. And if you would like to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that, I want to welcome back to the show Matt Mann. Matt, how have you been? Not too bad. Uh, Before we get rolling, guys,
1: you're still missed Larry Sweeney, and guys out there, if you're having any type of issues at all mental, physical, whatever, reach out okay well, what, what happened to Larry Sweeney uh he committed suicide some years ago, and he had bipolar disorder and you know he he was loved by many and
0: oh wow uh, that is yeah, that is absolutely terrible. I have never. To my knowledge, do it, Have I known someone who has done that? But I, I, and I hope it stays that way. That's awful.
1: And also, you know, really, before we get rolling, I had to leave my house. Uh, I'm on a on a cell line because my girlfriend Gina, who I love very much, she has a bad case of gas, so I just had to get out of the house.
0: <laughs> I was just gonna love you very much after you told the world that. <laughs> right. Uh, 40 years ago it was 1982 it was probably my favorite year ever watching pro wrestling it was my first full year of going to the boston garden it was my first full year of getting georgia championship wrestling i i would say it's my favorite year ever and we're going to talk about what was going on in the wrestling world uh may 1982 we're going to start with a mid-atlantic show the first one, it's from Greenville, South Carolina, May 10th, 1982. Jack Briscoe beats Roddy Piper to win the Mid-Atlantic Championship. Now, Matt, I went back and I looked. I had this idea in my head that the Mid-Atlantic Championship had been de-emphasized. And I'm like, wow, Jack Jack Briscoe and Roddy Piper, those are two no-questions-asked Hall of Famers. And the title really wasn't de-emphasized until... Like 1983, I mean, we have some top guys. You know, Ricky Steamboat, Ivan Koloff, Roddy Piper, Jack Briscoe, Paul Jones was still a big deal, Dory Funk Jr. And then in 83, Rufus R. Jones held it for a while. I'm like, okay, this title doesn't count anymore. And then Angelo Mosca Jr. won it in 84, and it was going Mm -hmm. downhill from there.
1: Well, another part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network is uh, Mike Sempervivi and Roman Gomez. They have the mid-Atlantic pod. Uh, where they go, you know, each week with uh, talking about a full show and they, they play clips of things, and they they've discussed this exact time, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of rough. It's it's it, it's rough.
0: I mean the the Mid Atlantic area in general. Yes. Okay. I mean yeah, every promotion. Mean. Every promotion goes through a slump, and I think Oli. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oli Anderson was booking. Both Georgia and Mid Atlantic, I think, and that I mean those are two major promotions. That's going to be a, a creative strain on anybody.
1: Yes, it, it was the same. Yeah, he was booking both at the same time, and you can tell that that he was spreading himself thin as far as bringing, you know, in, in the in the in the early past, you know, they would have guys come in to, you know work the Georgia TVs or you know even pop into Mid Atlantic, and now you really at around this time you don't see many guest spots. It's just like pretty much the same crew, so it, it was getting kind of bland there. I mean, yes, the promos were good, the matches were great on TV too. the the The, the job guys actually, you know, were talented. You know, they they had uh, Ben Alexander. They had a bunch of different people that were very talented that could be in more than opening matches and prelims and doing jobs. But it just wasn't exciting. It didn't quite heat up, you know, uh, uh, Strongbow and, and Steamboat. You know, they weren't rolling. It was a strange time. It was just kind of like uh, coasting, you know, sitting on your laurels.
0: That is a good way to put it, because Mid-Atlantic used kind of the same crew for a long time. I mean, Ric Flair was NWA champion, but he's still here. You know, that that same 70s crew of steamboat youngblood jones etc a, a lot of them wahoo mcdaniel i mean every promotion needs change i think that's one problem with the wwe now or has been for a while is that you know you have a lot of talent a lot of really talented guys but they're in the same place for 20 years and it, it doesn't work
1: i agree the fans get tired of them uh same well you know you end up getting the same matchups, you know, six months down the road, the programs just weren't enjoyable.
0: Yeah. And it's funny too, because I, I understand mid Atlantic was kind of in a slump, but I was, you know, I was getting Georgia wrestling on TV at this time. And I absolutely loved it. It could be that maybe Oli just had his focus on a the promotion that was on national cable, which makes sense, but then hand mid Atlantic over to someone else.
1: Exactly. Uh, like you said, you had Wahoo, who, you know, had the book on and off in Florida and the AWA. He knew what to do. Paul
0: Jones has got a great mind. Shitty wrestler, but great mind. Um, he wasn't always a bad wrestler, though, but now he's older and he's got his back is bad. But like hmm. five, ten years ago, he was really good. I never I mean, trust me, John, you know me. I, I was a tape
1: trader back in the day and I just could not stand Paul Jones at all. Wow.
0: All right, hey, yeah, bland. we're all about different opinions here, mm-hmm. and the promos are <laughs> bland too. I thought his babyface promos were good, and yeah, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, he did a standard "I play sports for a living" babyface promo. I, 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 I liked Paul Jones, and you know, from what I've seen in the '70s, and his heel turn was so shocking to me. I mean, I remember being at grand central station in New York, uh, you know, picking up a copy of the wrestler and, and seeing him number one, most hated. And I'm like, wait a minute, this has got to be a misprint.
1: No. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, and it's, it's not because I'm jaded from the later Crockett stuff. No, I'm just, I mean, I went back and I watched, you know, some of the Florida films, you know, some of that 16 and eight millimeter film and the cornet garbage tapes. You know, I mean, I actually went back and, really studied Paul Jones because everybody and their mother would put him over. He was so good. And I was like, I just don't get it. He's just, I
0: don't know. Ah, Like I said, we're all about different opinions here, but I I liked earlier Paul Jones, and I will be the first to tell you that he was one of the worst managers that ever got a a national stage. I mean, he's right up there as far as being bad with Mr. Fuji. Mm, 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 mm. Not good. Word was that uh, someone told, once told me that Paul Jones knew where all of the bodies were buried. That is a quote, and that's mm-hmm. why he had continued employment from Jim Crockett until the day the promotion was sold. But anyway, another result, Jake Roberts defeats Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, Slaughter had come into Mid-Atlantic, I want to say like uh, fall 1981, and got a huge push, won the United States Championship. But he seems to be on the other side of the mountain here.
1: Well, I I wouldn't say the other side of the mountain. I think they're just kind of keeping him keeping him kind of low key because we know what happens in, in the very near future. Uh, so, you know what? Uh, I should have said as a singles wrestler. My bad. Mm, well, no, I'm just no no. You're right that they kind of kept him under the radar. Just kept him, you know, not in anything big, not in anything big, so he wouldn't get he wouldn't wear out his welcome. And then when you know he 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 joined up with Granula and whatnot. Then it actually meant something, because how can we miss you if you don't go away? He didn't leave the territory. He just was underneath and wasn't really focused on.
0: Exactly. And what a brilliant angle. I I always thought that was that you have this guy, Sergeant Slaughter, and he picks up a protege who is a private. I mean, it, it makes total sense. I loved it. I love the stuff with
1: with, uh, with Boris Zukov and his huge head. Um, the, you know, the road to Greensboro, final conflict, all that stuff that the TV was so much fun, just, and slaughter was such a jerk. He was
0: so good. He was so good. I mean, he got more heat. I started watching wrestling in 1976 and when he was in the WWF, he got more heat than anyone I'd ever seen before or since like either he or Jesse Ventura. Sarge got more heat on TV, Jesse got more heat in Boston at the arenas. We'll talk about that more in a minute.
1: I agree. He he was just on a different level and it's amazing if you go back and you watch, you know, the eighty three stuff and then you you watch him in the AWA and you're like, Oh, talk about a drop. Yeah,
0: I, I just saw something on sergeant Slaughter in the AWA as um mass super uh destroyer II mark two and they mm-hmm. did an angle where he had to unmask Wally Carbo's like, Hey, you lost the match Unmask!" And wow, they, they did it At first. I thought he was going to hide. Um, He had a, a robe with a hood and he took the mask off. I'm like, okay, we still can't see him. And then Carbo said, take the hood off. It was pretty funny. Here's an interesting match. Don Morocco defeats Ole Anderson. Don Morocco is in the mid Atlantic area as a babyface after a successful run as a heel in the WWF, as Wahoo McDaniels' tag team partner, obviously that was not going to last.
1: Morocco took a vacation from New York. See, Vince Sr. knew, he had his finger on the pulse, he knew when to cycle people out, you know, to send them somewhere else for a while. So that's why, you know, the a, a lot of the top heels that were working for Vince Sr., like Ernie Ladd, Ivan Koloff, uh, Morocco, he would cycle them out, they'd go somewhere else, and then they would come back. So that way he didn't get stale. He did not get stale. Morocco did not get stale.
0: He did not get stale in the Northeast. I thought Morocco was a guy they brought back too soon. Um, he was still there at the end of 1982, and December 1982, he's back, which made me think Okay, this is the this is the guy Backlund's gonna lose to. Superstar Graham wasn't gone very long before he won the belt, and obviously that didn't happen.
1: You know, I actually think Morocco could have had a pretty good heel run because he had heat. He had heat.
0: He had heat, and he was established as a superstar. I mean, he comes in mm-hmm. the first time. He wins the Intercontinental Championship. He has a, a successful run with that belt. He has a big run around the horn against Bob Backlund. I mean, it looked like they were uh, building him up as the next superstar, Billy Graham, who you know has a, a short run. Not really a short run, but a 10-month run with the championship while they get the new baby face champion ready. So when he came back, I thought that was it.
1: Well, then when he was in the mid Atlantic at this time, he was again, just kind of in the mid cardish type, you know, he wasn't really going anywhere again. Uh, I would rather have seen him, you know, go, go work St. Louis, you know, and more AWA stuff. You know, I would love to have seen him have a run with the uh, Missouri title. You know, that way, you know, you can have the option of, bringing him back to New York to have, a you know, another run for the title, or he can, you know, have a run with Flair. Um, imagine Flair in Morocco in Hawaii, in Aloha Stadium. <laughs> Yo, how
0: do you want to think about that? I, I mean, he was, and later in 1982, he shows up in Georgia as Mr. X. And as soon as that guy came on TV, I'm not the best guy when it comes to, recognizing someone under a mask. Like I didn't recognize Rick rude in ECW. That's how thick I can be. But as soon as I saw Morocco in that dumb mask, I'm like, okay, why is Morocco wearing a sock? And well, obviously he would become a heel in Georgia and he would leave without notice. One thing about Morocco, I'm babbling a little bit. If someone who knows about Florida wrestling knows why he never went back to Florida after, like, 1981, please let me know. Same thing with Bob Orton Jr. I thought both of them were conspicuous by their absence in Florida, like, after 1980, 1981.
1: I think I know why. He was running low low on money, and he had to uh, pawn his surfboard, so he couldn't surf anymore, so he figured he'd leave.
0: Okay. Ah, I you know what? I mean, Eddie Graham seems to have like I don't know. I know Eddie Graham had a falling out with Gary Hart, who was huge in Florida and never took Gary Hart back. So I'm thinking maybe Orton had a falling out with Graham in like 77, 78. And maybe Morocco had one too. I don't know. But if anyone from the Facebook group has information on that, I would greatly appreciate it. Now we're going to move on to Florida Championship Wrestling. Jimmy Garvin wins the NWA Florida Championship for Mr. Wrestling 2. Jimmy Garvin was exactly 30 years old at this point, and it looked like his career either had hit a wall or was never going to go anywhere because he won the Florida Championship in 1979. He looked like a guy who was, you know, young babyface who was on the rise, and then his career completely fell off. He was, you know, wrestling mid-card in uh, mid-South Georgia, and now he finds the gimmick that made him a lot of money—gorgeous Jimmy Garvin as a heel.
1: I love Gorgeous Jimmy. It's not my fault. His um, interviews were great. Oh, I loved him. He was so—I had so much fun watching him at the Cow Palace taking on uh, uh, Rick Martel. That serial was phenomenal. Uh, that early, actually for him, it would be his late Florida stuff was, uh, was really good. And you can tell that he was learning from all the keels that would come and go, you know, you could tell he was sitting under the learning tree and he was picking up stuff from different people. And then, you know, and, come Texas, he's ready. You know, he, he was, in, he was, he was learning, learning, then he hit Texas and that was it. And this was the beginning of that, that, that turning point. I don't know. Did Mr. Wrestling Two go down to a, a Florida as a favor to Oli or something?
0: Two was in and out of Florida the whole time I had it on cable. Like he would, um, he would just come in and do like a week on, in the territory, and he would like you know show up like three times a week a year on TV right around then. So I'm not sure. I mean, it, it seems a little bit out of place that someone who is not a regular in Florida would would hold that championship. Vacation. He would come well, in for a vacation,
1: that. I'm assuming, with his wife, you know, come in, hold the title or, you know, whatever, and put someone out over on the way out. Hey, you know what? It's smart. If you, if you can get a paid vacation
0: to Florida three times a year and get paid for it, can't knock the hustle. No, absolutely not. And a, a lot of guys did that in the Florida territory. They would come in for a week, and they could write everything off. And it it's all perfectly legal. I mean, you know, fine. It was good for Eddie Graham mm mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. Uh, now, we are recording Sunday, uh, May the 8th, And it is the 40th anniversary of a match that I probably talked too much about. It was the first great wrestling match that I'd ever seen in my entire life at the Boston garden. Bob Backlund defeats Bob Orton jr. Um, Mm -hmm. I so wish there were footage of this. I know there isn't, but I mean, it was just a wild, like 35 minute match that that was nonstop great psychology. I mean, everyone I went with agreed like that was like, Uh, Just a phenomenal match. Any thoughts on Bob Orton Jr., Bat?
1: Oh, boy. I feel he's underrated because the majority of people remember, you know, his WVF run with Piper and all that. But, yeah, he is very underrated. A great, great performer when he was in Mid-Atlantic. Great in tag teams. Uh, He's been in quite a few different ones with Slater. Was a good one. Just extremely talented. A great mechanic. You know who reminded me of him was Steve Austin when he was in WCW, a great mechanic.
0: That's, that's actually a really good comp because Austin was a great mechanic and Orton for a long time, like in 87, 88, my, I was like, oh man, Bob Orton Jr. is completely lost and he sucks. And he, no, he was still pretty good in the WWF. I didn't think he was good in the NWA in 1989. It was like, okay, I'll show up and where's my paycheck. But, you know, he was such a great natural wrestler and such a great athlete. Great heel. Crappy baby face, but great heel. I know Piper and Orton were tight in real life, but we're going into 1984 now. But when they brought in Bob Orton Jr. as Piper's bodyguard, which I've heard was actually somewhat legit, um, you know, for when the, those two were outside the ring because no one could mess with Bob Orton Jr. But I didn't think he had the right look for that role. Like, you know, if Piper's going to have a bodyguard, you want to have someone like King Kong Bundy, I would think. But, I mean, it worked. What can I say? Uh, it worked. We had another great match at the Boston Garden May 8th, 1982. And this one I've talked about before. I won't overdo it, but it might surprise people. Uh, Tony Atlas and Jesse Ventura had a cage match that was a really good brawl, as far as I remember. And I mean, they hated Jesse Ventura in Boston. I mean, and they loved Tony Atlas. And it was a great match. Like, that might surprise people. Tony Atlas was a phenomenal performer.
1: He just made mistakes and you know uh he had his demons too but jesse can talk anybody's ear off anybody into a building and a steel cage match or a street fight or whatever that's jesse that that's his wheelhouse he can fight he Was never a great wrestler and we know that
0: but We do can know that Fight. we can fight he can fight I I think Jesse almost doesn't get enough credit for being such a poor performer, but at the same time getting away with it because he was so good at the stick. Like in 1982, I mean, I saw him multiple times live and almost every week on television. And I never noticed that the guy couldn't do anything. And
1: he's carryable. Okay. You, you
0: had Luger, right? Luger
1: always had great matches with people that could carry him. I always put Jesse in the same category um, where he wasn 't a great performer, but if he was in there with someone that could carry him and do the business and had a, a great attachment to the crowd, a, a good baby face, he could have passable to good matches
0: that that is true, especially earlier in his career. One other notable match on this show was Pedro Morales defeats Adrian Adonis by disqualification. Adrian Adonis might have been the best wrestler in the world, May 1982, and I am including Ric Flair, Sergeant Slaughter, Ricky Steamboat. Like he might have been better than all of them. Not this show, but I believe it was the next one. I saw Adrian Adonis have a really good match with post broken leg Andre the Giant. Like he just bounced around like a pinball. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah. Pedro Morales, in his second run as Intercontinental Champion, I thought he was a great number two babyface behind Bob Backlund. Any thoughts on Pedro Morales, Matt? I never enjoyed his work.
1: He was, you know, he was your usual kick, punch, brawler guy, and I'm not the demographic that he was connecting with. I'm I'm a Caucasian male, and he the Latino fans went nuts for him. So that, and I could understand, but that's the Vince senior formula. Anyway, I just couldn't get into him. I just really couldn't
0: at this point in his career. Pedro Morales was, I mean, he was not good in the ring. He threw a good punch and if he had a good night and a good opponent, he would have a good match like he did on this night with, with Adrian Adonis. I think Pedro, I mean, the Boston garden did not draw a tremendous Latino crowd. Of course there were some, but I mean, Pedro, my recollection is he was as over as anyone in the WWF, excluding Bob Backlund because he was a champion, excluding Jimmy Snuka when he took off. I mean, Pedro was right up there with, you know, Ivan Putsky, Bobo Brazil, you know, the other top guys in the WWF.
1: Yeah. I, I just couldn't connect with his matches. You know, his opponents tend to connect with me better. Uh, when he had the feud with Morocco, you know, when, when, uh, you know, the other feuds that he had, I connected more with the heel. I just, well, I there. don't know. I just can't buy him. I just, I just can't buy him,
0: you know. I, and you, when, you know, in 1982, make, let's make it clear. I did not like Pedro Morales. I did not like Bob Backlund. I did not like Ivan Putski. I liked the bad guys. But looking back, I thought Pedro he filled the shoes nicely. They needed a number two babyface. They needed a babyface intercontinental champion. I, I thought he did well in the role. But here's something else that happened in 1982. May 26th, Rocky III comes out, and it's starring Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. And I mean, the things these two would do in the WWF just uh, three years later. Okay, it's
1: cheap plug time. Uh, my friend Carl Stern, who runs WhenItWasCool.com, and also uh, I love works that for observer oh i love it too carl put out a saga of hulk hogan in the awa long form uh, podcast the uh, talking about the whole thing whole thing from the japan stuff the awa uh the, the title thing with Bach, uh with buckwinkle rocky three you can get that at tinyurl.com backslash k z h-u-l-k it's a free podcast definitely worth checking out Carl's the man when it comes to research and podcasts, and also I work for him. So, you know, I got to plug the boss's site, but that podcast just, it explains the whole thing. I never really was a fan of Hogan until that movie. I don't think anybody else could have played that role as Thunder Lich. Do you think anybody else could have?
0: Oh, I mean, there's got to be someone in Hollywood, but Hogan, there was nothing wrong with him uh, doing that movie. Matt, how old were you in 1982, like May 1982? Nine years old about to turn oh. ten okay, so you don't even you get to make decisions like I did, like I'm going to see this movie the weekend it came out, and I did, and I only went because I knew Hulk Hogan was in it oh, my dad took me,
1: so oh, cool. my my dad is my dad is a was an old fan of the you know Cap States, so he, he you know he's all Hogan, yeah, we'll go.
0: Anytime a wrestler was in a movie, I went to go see the movie because it was so, it was such a unique thing. Now they're in the movies all the time. But like I went out of my way to see escape from New York just because Ox Baker was in it. Now, of course I'm going to go see Rocky three with Hulk Hogan.
1: It was a great film. I mean, that, that movie is pro wrestling. It, it is. is pro wrestling. The whole thing from the clubber Lang stuff to, you know, the, the Mickey with the heart attack and, you know, all that's, it's, it's pro wrestling through and through and Stallone is a, a, a big time fan. And we know that, you know, from his past, you know, uh, Paradise Alley and, you know, stuff like that. He is a fan and it was a very, very big get for Stallone. And he knew, I don't know. He knew something about that, about Hulk Hogan. He had, I don't know, but this just skyrocketed Hogan's Hogan's career.
0: It totally did. I mean, you know, we now have a wrestler who is also a movie star. Yeah, it wasn't a giant role, but it was a memorable role. And I think it really helped his career. I think to this day, Hogan should send uh, Sylvester Stallone a muffin basket once a year. All right, big show at the New Orleans Superdome. What looks like the main event is JYD, Junkyard Dog, and Mr. Olympia defeating the Samoans, off and Sika, in a lights out match. Any thoughts on any of these guys because I have a lot
1: Jerry Stubbs is the most underrated performer ever in the pro wrestling business just a phenomenal talent, you know whether with with or without the mask uh, if you put the mask on he's a just an amazing talent j y d is j y d it is what it is you know he connected with the fans and the Samoans who were from out here in san francisco very underrated as a team, they were trained properly and you know they 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 knew what to do and they knew business they learned it all from uh, rocky johnson and peter myvie nothing more you know i mean they were just a phenomenal
0: team you know, one thing about the Samoans, they came to the WWF in, in late 1979. I recognized them as the Islanders from, you know, pictures in the magazines. And the WWF was weird. Like, once, usually, once a tag team leaves, they break up. Like, the Valiant Brothers broke up after they left in 1979. The Yukon Lumberjacks were never heard from again. The Executioners were never heard from again but the Samoans and I was a little bit surprised by this they went on to have big runs here in Mid-South and then they would soon have a big run in Georgia
1: the thing is though if you look at Offa and Sika they they were not your stereotypical singles performers. you know they used a lot of double teams the double head butts and you know the, the the dirty tactics they they wouldn't have made good singles performers, and also, you know, the, the bookers and promoters, you know, in all those different territories recognized that they were a, a great heel team and it wouldn't make any sense to separate them.
0: No, it didn't. Um I'm just my observation was that a lot of the time promotions, you know, they would bring in singles guys and create their own tag teams, and the Samoans, I guess, were were good enough to overcome that.
1: Oh, they were they oh definitely. And they were just, uh, they they were a package deal. And, they you know, you're not going to bring in Road Warrior Animal.
0: No, I mean, same, you look
1: at, you know, same premise.
0: Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, you know, the Road Warriors were kind of, I don't know, like, after, I mean, the game changed right after the Road Warriors debuted. So, I mean, but I mean, I'm glad the Samoans got what they got in the WWF, in Mid-South, and Georgia. Jerry Stubbs, I agree with you that he was a fantastic performer. A year later, he turned on Mr. Wrestling 2 and won the North American Championship. And I, I, as much as I liked him, that push didn't work, and it really felt like he just wasn't the level of a North American champion. That's not a knock on Jerry Stubbs. Like, you know, not too many guys are at that level. It just didn't feel like he was... I don't know, enough of a star, I guess.
1: Mm, He was a little on on the smallest side as well. You know, he was a junior heavyweight. So that, and, you know, he tended to like to go back home. So that, you know, that's why he didn't get the run again. I would love to have seen him have a run against Backlund. That would have been fun.
0: It would have been. As a one-and-done, absolutely, I could see that happening. Uh, Bob Roop defeats Paul Orndorff in a taped fist match. This is interesting because I would watch old Mid-South tapes from 1982, and Paul Orndorff, right around this time, shows up in Georgia, wins the national championship, and is promoted as the number one babyface, number one threat to Ric Flair. Bill Watts would go on Mid-South TV, and he would talk about how Paul Orndorff was, you know, he's the number one guy in that promotion in Georgia. And Bob Roop ran him out of here. So what does that tell you about how good Paul Orndorff was? And I was like, wow, why is he doing this?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe Watts thought they would uh, give Orndorff a run with the title.
0: I mean, Paul Orndorff is one of the handful of guys who, in my opinion, if Ric Flair just decided to quit wrestling or go to the WWF or the AWA would have been a viable NWA champion. Like he, if he's not number one on my list, he's in the top five.
1: Well, he has, you know, okay. He doesn't have the, the amateur credentials that, that Briscoe had, or, you know, the, the just wiliness of, of Dory or Terry, but he's a guy that could shoot. And you're not going to double-cross it. You know, he was, he was double-tough like Harley. So he would have fit right in as NWA champion.
0: He would have. And I remember when he showed up in Georgia. You know, he shows up. He wins the championship. He's on TV, in the suit, with the national championship title belt in his hand. And I was like, you know, this guy has the look. It would not surprise me one day to see him winning that championship. And I, I don't see, say that about everybody.
1: Well, that he made that that choice to go to New York, and the rest is history.
0: He turned heel. Well, he quit Georgia with no notice. He turned heel. He uh, had. He was supposed to have the run against Backlund, but he had the run against Hogan, and a just a huge run in the WWF in the mid nineteen eighties. And man, what a great physique he had. He and he was a great natural heel, and he could handle himself. Just
1: ask Vader. Well, you
0: can't now, but you could, you know, years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the story about the, the beating Orndorff gave Vader's. you know, someone said that, you know, luckily Paul Orndorff was not wearing shoes. Otherwise, he would have killed Vader he was just sitting there kicking him with his bare feet. Anyway, here's an interesting tag team match, an interesting tag team. One man gang teams with Harley race to defeat the team of Andre, the giant and Dick Murdoch by disqualification. So Andre never lost in the WWF, even in a tag team, in a DQ, but they did things differently in mid South wrestling. I'm thinking this is how they're putting over one man gang big time.
1: You know, that, that match is kind of an oddball match for, for mid South. It sounds like something they would book in St. Louis, you know, one of those odd couple type of tag matches that they tend to do. Yeah. Who are putting two programs together. Maybe, I think that's probably what they did. They put two programs together so that, you know, it would be in just one match and they wouldn't have, you know, 42 matches in the superdome.
0: Yeah, and this way you're building up one-man gang for a singles match with Andre the Giant. And you're building him up maybe for a feud with a babyface Ernie Ladd, who defeated the assassin by count on this show. Now, they had a really good angle coming into this. Ernie Ladd was managing the Samoans while Ernie was recovering from knee surgery. And Skandor Akbar buys the Samoans out from Ernie Ladd. So this turns Ernie Ladd babyface. Ernie Ladd makes a deal to bring in the assassin to team with him against the Smoans. except there's a problem. Skandor Akbar buys him too. This is all viewable on WWE network. So here we have the single match. Ernie Ladd defeats the assassin by count out. I thought the assassin was one of the greatest heels ever. Uh, this is towards the end of his career, but what a great talker he was. Believable.
1: When he said something, Rhodes, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to kill you Rhodes he was more believable in promos than Oli Anderson was.
0: It was the same type of promo, but I agree. It was an even better one. And, you know, some people might listen to this podcast and and figure out that, you know, I'm I'm not as adoring with Oli Anderson as some people are. Uh, I I will not take anything away from Oli Anderson. He is one of the best talkers in wrestling history. You just felt
1: you could feel when uh, Jody Hamilton was was talking talking in a promo you knew that he wanted you just knew he was evil to the heart that he wanted to kill someone and that just came across the screen and it worked so well and another one in that same vein would be uh, Billy Eadie the mask superstar they're in the same type of you know believable you know that that's what we don't have a lot nowadays believable promos but you knew that Jody Hamilton was going to get him some.
0: Yeah, I mean, he reminds me a little bit of Ted DiBiase when he was a heel in Mid-South. Ted DiBiase Mm -hmm. would kill you. I mean, it would be inconvenient, but he'd do it if you were in his way. And the assassin was just like that. Okay, look, this is inconvenient, but you're between me and what I want, so I'm going to kill you. There it is. All right. Ted DiBiase defeats Tully Blanchard. I'm not sure what led up to this. Ted DiBiase and Tully Blanchard were teammates at West Texas state. And I saw a promo from Ted DiBiase once where he was talking about how, you know, Ted was a tight end and he never liked Tully Blanchard and he hated having to block for him. I thought that was fantastic.
1: I'm pretty sure. I, I haven't seen the TV from this time, but I'm pretty sure that that was played up. You, you see the TV correct from that time.
0: Oh yeah, Definitely.
1: Okay, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that they went the football angle because you know it's common knowledge that you know all these guys played together. It was never hidden. They they you know they would mention it and stuff. And I'm I'm very sure that uh Mr. Watts mentioned that during broadcast and and things like that. So I'm pretty sure you know it it was it was something like that. But this wasn't a long-term deal either. You know, Tully was coming was on loan from uh Houston or uh pardon me Southwest. So you know, he was still going in Southwest, so I think it was kind of like a, a an attraction type of deal as a, as opposed to doing it all around the horn.
0: No, uh, Bill Watts would sometimes do that. He would bring in guys short term, and and Tully Blanchard was one of those guys. Tully proved me wrong. I always thought like around this time, I'm thinking, okay, this guy, he's good as a. A big fish in a small pond, like Southwest Championship Wrestling. But it, you know he's never going to get over, like I said, a, a challenger to Bob Backlund, or as oh I don't know, the United States Heavyweight Champion in, in Mid Atlantic. But he did it. He's one of the all-time great heels. Unless you look at his win-loss record against Dusty Rhodes, he always yeah. lost. He everyone all, I mean, always lost to Dusty.
1: He always lost, and while Arn Anderson on his podcast would would always stress that. You know, it was Dusty going over Tully all the time. And Tully got really frustrated. And and I think that's what led to Tully and Arn becoming a team so that he wouldn't have to lose to Dusty every night.
0: Yeah, they definitely overdid the Dusty versus Tully program. They did it in 84. They did it in 85. They did it in 86. They did it in 87. So I could see And Tully 88, Class 2. Oh, that's right. and <laughs> Dusty, challenging. That's right. I forgot about that. Oh, I mean, it yeah. wasn't as as big a feud in 88, but still, they really ran it into the ground. And, I mean, it's Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard. You're going to enjoy it. just not all of the time. <laughs> Imagine what Tully's forehead would look like if he didn't wrestle Dusty. Oh, man. Uh, Tully Blanchard, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him. Same thing with Ted DiBiase. I mean, he was, again, in that handful of guys that if Ric Flair wasn't available, he would have been a great NWA champion. I agree completely. All right. We on to St. Louis, uh, May the 14th, 1982. Attendance, 10,119. So not bad at all. You were we're talking about weird St. Louis tag team matches and here we mm-hmm. go Andre the mm-hmm. Giant and Dick the Bruiser defeat Dick Murdoch and Crusher Blackwell.
1: There you go. There that's a, another oddball team but I mean they were bigger guys though. So you know it you know it was a, kind of a hoss fight and you know I'm pretty sure it was just a brawl you know because you know Dick the Bruiser wasn't even when he was young he wasn't a technical wrestler. And and Andre, you know, was pretty limited, you know, with what he could do, honestly. Blackwell, very underrated performer, great dropkick for a 400-plus man, and a sweet guy. Uh, I met him in late 85 when he was doing the thing with Brody, and he was such a nice guy. And uh, Dick Murdoch's just a wrestler's wrestler. He's in my all-time top 10 performers. Should be in the Observer Hall of Fame. I'm sorry, Dave, but you know what? You got you need to just do the veterans committee thing and put them in. But yeah, that's just a, an odd team.
0: Yeah, St. Louis was was famous for that, and and I mean, I I actually kind of like that. I don't need to see like established teams like the Midnight Express against the Rock and Roll Express every time. You, 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 the the old WWF and Florida used to mix it up a little bit, and I never had a problem with that.
1: Oh, you know, also you know. If any of the four men were defeated okay, in that match, you could come on TV and say, hey, I beat this guy in a tag match, and it actually meant something. It held a cachet. Uh, Murdoch pinned the bruiser. Murdoch comes on TV. I should get a shot at the Missouri title because I beat the bruiser. You know, And each of those names meant something in St. Louis. And those random tag team matches, that's how they were used. That was a way of putting someone over and kind of shoving them, you know, into the title picture. So, you know, that's why it makes sense to have that odd couple tag team match.
0: I, I agree. I mean, one of the ma- matches that I was just dying to go to when I was a kid, it was in 1976, and it was at the Providence Civic Center. I didn't get to go, but it was Bruno Sammartino, Chief J Strongbow, and Billy White Wolf against Stan Hansen and the Executioners. And I'm like, you know, it's made my imagination run wild. I'm like, wow, I want to see these six guys fight. Yeah, you know,
1: it would be, uh, you know, a wild match, but also, you know, the one that went that got the pin or whatever went over. And it, it meant something. And that's, you know, it's, it's like the same thought in, in the trios matches in, in Mexico, that's how they would build up, you know, bigger singles matches, you know, up to the hair or mask or whatever.
0: It's the same, same premise. No, I I totally see that. Like you, I enjoyed it. Here is a a result that I find really interesting. Not really the result. Let me throw this at everybody. Dewey Robertson, who is about to become the missing link, defeats Ray Hernandez, who would soon be Hercules Hernandez. Dewey Robertson was substituting for Jack Briscoe. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard. The phrase, you do not miss St. Louis. I heard a story about they were supposed to get snow, and Dory Funk Jr. was booked for St. Louis. And Dory's like, oh, well, I I might miss this show. And his dad, Dory Funk Sr. said, you don't miss St. Louis. And Dory took a train from Amarillo to St. Louis, which must have been like at least 18 hours, because you did not miss St. Louis. And here's Jack Briscoe doing exactly that. I'm thinking it's because Muchnick retired.
1: That and Jack was starting to slow down. You know, he's slowing down on the schedule. You know, until... Jack and Jerry got into the program with Steamboat and Youngblood, then, you know, it picked up again. Because I think that that Jack was just kind of done. You know, he had like one foot in the business, and I think he was just slowing down.
0: You know, you're right. I mean, he would just up and quit like two and a half years later because he didn't like the fact that it was snowing in Connecticut. Mm Mm-hmm. That yeah. was wild. I mean, most guys, okay, well, I'll go home to Florida and I'll wrestle for Eddie Graham again, part-time, whatever. Like, no, Jack was just done. And you know what? That doesn't happen overnight.
1: That's very true.
0: I, I don't I don't know,
1: you know, exactly why he stuck around and didn't just walk. I, I'm not quite sure. There's, there had to have been a reason. Or uh, maybe, you know, while he was in the Mid-Atlantic, they, they had plans for. Uh, him and him and Jerry.
0: Well, I mean, I th- I'm glad Jack and Jerry had that brief run in the WWF in eighty four and, and early eighty five. I mean he definitely it didn't last long, but he got to be on national television again and got pushed and you know I'm I'm happy for him that he got to do that. Well they had
1: the great matches with the Donison Murdoch and they they taught the figure forward to Tito Santana. Did they have any other matches against any other named teams?
0: Not that I am aware of. No, I think they came in, they did squashes, and they they went right to the Adonis and Murdoch series, which was always an excellent match.
1: Oh, their MSG match was great.
0: Yeah, they had a match. They had a match in Boston that was really good. All right. Then in St. Louis, we have David and Kerry Von Eric defeating Ken Patera and Roger Kirby. Uh, Roger Kirby is at the end of his career here, but he was still in good shape. Patera, I keep bringing this up. We talk about guys who could have had a run with the NWA championship around this time. That's how highly I think of Ken Patera. He was that good in 1982.
1: He was a headliner in three different promotions. Yeah, you know, and, three different major territories.
0: Yeah, I was in 1982 waiting for him to come back to the WWF and take that title away from Bob Backlund. I also used to think in 1982 that it would be kind of cool if two of the Von Eriks, like let's say David and Kevin, came to the WWF and had a run with the Tag Team Championships. I I think they would have been very successful up here.
1: Oh, I agree. I personally think David's overrated. But I think that as a team, Kevin and, and David would have really gotten over with the with the younger folks. David would get over with, you know, kind of the older people, you know, because he he wrestled more of a mature type style. And Kevin was balls to the wall, flying around all over. He would have got over with the kids. And I don't know. I, I kind of think that Vince had kind of an issue, you know, where he would, he'd think he may have had problems with Fritz if he used the kids.
0: Uh, maybe, I mean, you know, then again, if you're Fritz, you say, okay, they have a seven or eight run in the Northeast. They're on national cable as tag team champions. You know, you kind of, like you said, you freshen them up in Texas. And then when they come back, you've got the success story that, hey, we went to New York and we, we took everything. We won the tag team championships, et cetera. All three Von Erichs appeared in Madison Square Garden in 1980, which I thought was pretty cool if they would have not went to the WBF, they would have had some pretty good matches.
1: You know, the the work would have been really good and we would actually see how good of in-ring performers they actually were, you know, instead of spending those few years brawling all over with the Freebirds, which I love. I love that, that program to death, but you know, I also enjoy, you know, a good technical match. Uh, I do enjoy good ring work too, but it, it would have been interesting to see what they did. And, you know, that's pretty cool that, you know, when they, when, uh, Vince senior would bring in just random people to, you know, work MSG, like Tommy rich worked one shot, you know, that, that was cool. That was
0: fun. I really missed when they stopped doing that and they stopped doing it around 81, 82, but like, you know, they would always get, uh, featured in the magazines. Like, well, wow. Gino Hernandez wrestled a match here. Wow. Steve Kern was here. You know, Mike Graham and Steve Kern made an appearance, uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood I mean I you know they would go on TV and talk about the upcoming Madison Square Garden show and you're like wow I wish I lived closer to New York just so I could see these guys not just the whole show like but you know the, the guys making special appearances and I wish they did that in Boston but they didn't all right
1: Johnny Mac who was the last bring in for
0: MSG okay not counting Dusty Rhodes yep okay I, I'm going to guess Terry Taylor, JJ Dillon. Oh, wow. Well, that's right. He wrestled Tito Santana in 1984 yep. and they did it. That was it. At, from what I understand, you know, JJ J. was in Long Island and he just said, Hey, it's always been my dream to wrestle, wrestle in Madison Square Garden. And they're like, okay, you got it.
1: Yeah. That was the last bring in like that.
0: All right. Yeah, I didn't think of that, but you're right. You're totally right. It's J.J. Dillon. All right. Let's head to the Omni in Atlanta, May 16th, 1982, headlined by Ric Flair, defeating Leroy Brown by disqualification. Um, Leroy Brown, not exactly the first guy you'd think of as a top threat to Ric Flair, but they did a really tasteless angle on Georgia TV, and it's a grudge match, and here we are.
1: No. No, thank you. No, thank you again. I love Rick Flair to death, but I would not watch him and Leroy Brown. Uh, I saw the promos, you know, leading up to the match and the the Georgia TV the the night before. No, I'm sorry. Leroy Brown was a, a should have been kept as a, a preliminary tag team wrestler, a lower mid card tag wrestler. That's all he was worth. He was just no good.
0: Now, you see, I disagree. I liked liked him as a promo, and I've been watching some Georgia wrestling from around this time with Mm -hmm. Leroy Brown as a babyface, and I thought he did a really good promo. When he was in Florida, I thought he was a really good heel and really good behind the mic, and I think he absolutely could have come to the WWF and done a, maybe even, I was going to say a one-and-done, but maybe even a series against Bob Backlund but the fact, I mean, once he got in the ring, the fun was over. He was not very good. I would have loved to see Ric Flair versus Leroy Brown just out of morbid curiosity.
1: All right. You and I can watch it together, John.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it's not. <laughs> then, I was going to say, I'm sure it's not available. But then again, stuff pops up every now and then that you wouldn't think would ever be available. The the thing with Leroy Brown, though, I loved his
1: run in the UWF and in Devastation Incorporated. And I loved his run in the Zambui
0: Express. That was fun. That's how you should use the man. In Zambui Express, I don't even know about that because if you want to team L- Leroy Brown with someone, to me, I'm thinking, okay, someone like Wild Bill Irwin, who he was tagged tag champs with in right. UWF, because Irwin could at least work a little bit. Like when you put him in there with Ray Candy, whatever the, the two of them are calling themselves in the Zambui Express, I mean, you've got two guys who can't move now.
1: That's a good point. But, you know, they were mauling people, but that, you know, that works. It worked.
0: It, it worked on television. I'm I'm certainly not blaming them. I mean, they did Dusty Rhodes and Blackjack Mulligan against the Zambouis, and it was right around the time that Florida attendance started to decline. It's, and every promotion has its ups and downs. I'm certainly not blaming the Zambouis, but, I mean, it the tag team didn't really work as far as drawing a big audience. Who was their right. manager? Uh, okay. Their manager was, I'm trying to, uh, was Jimmy Holiday. And they were doing a thing where J.J. Dillon was really managing the Zambui Express, but he was having Jimmy Holiday out there as a... Like, you know, sort of the guy who supposedly is managed in them because JJ J. Dillon promised Ron Bass that he would exclusively manage Ron Bass. But you could tell JJ J. was the real manager of the Zambouis, which I mean, I'm sure something fell apart because this all looked like a an angle designed to put Ron Bass over big when he turned back babyface, But that never happened couple of other big matches here. Dusty Rhodes and Tommy Rich defeat Ole Anderson and Roddy Piper. I mean, we talked about Georgia from this mm-hmm. time a couple of weeks ago. I mean, just, I mean, great heat all around. These, these are like three feuds put in a blender and mixed up, and here we have it. I think it would have been a barn burner. I would love to have seen that match. Not so
1: much the main event, but that tag match was probably wild, and I, I would have loved to see Piper square up with Dusty.
0: Yeah, Piper never really had a one-on-one feud with Dusty Rhodes, and they certainly, I mean, kind of had time to put it together, but it just it just never happened. I mean, I think that would have been a cool feud. Just for the promos alone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Now, now we have Bob Armstrong defeating Gary Hart. Uh I'm not sure what led up to this match because Bob Armstrong's main feud was with uh, Roddy Piper at this point, but I mean, you know, I had no idea Gary Hart was wrestling singles matches at this point. probably shouldn't mm. have been doing.
1: No, it had to have been somehow Bob was able to get the match with the manager. It had to be a wrestler versus manager match and not many bumps because, you know, Gary Hart had the plane crash.
0: Exactly. Now we have Kevin Sullivan defeating Buzz Sawyer just a few weeks earlier. These guys are best buddies, but now they are fighting at the Omni, and Kevin Sullivan is once again a babyface in Georgia. That did not last.
1: I bet this was a brawl all around the arena. Just knowing those two, Buzz is a fucking nut bar, and, uh, you know, Sullivan's a devil, baby. I'm pretty sure that they just brawled around all over, and this was, you know, the wild match where the fans to stand up and. and, and, you know, run around the the arena with the, with the boys. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was just a, a brawl. And honestly, I think that this was a test to see if they could do a headlining type of program.
0: Huh, that's that's interesting because at this point both guys were kind of mid card in Georgia and you know I mean two two very talented dudes to say the least. Now we have kind of a weird tag team match. I don't know if we have a a substitution here, but we have Michael Hayes, Mr. Wrestling Two. And El Mongol, what is what is he doing here? Against Super Destroyer, Ray Stevens, and the mass superstar. The babyface team gets over, which is kind of weird because El Mongol's the guy who could take the fall, but that's not what happened.
1: That's one of those strange tag matches again. I think it was just to get the guy's nominee payoff.
0: That makes sense. I mean, you know, not every match can be a headliner, and you're right. You know, you want to have—the Omni was known for having really good cards from top to bottom, and this is a match—I mean, if this match is one that's near the bottom, that makes for a really good card.
1: I would rather have Stevens in a singles match against Hayes, but, you know, that's just me. I'd like to see him, you know, whooping Hayes around the ring all over.
0: That's (laughs) I mean, the Omni was tough because they ran it every two weeks and, it's you know, I mean, the WWF, they ran every four or five weeks, so I mean, you've just got a lot of wrestling to come up with.
1: Well, you know, the thing is, though, there were a lot more outlaw performers or, you know, uh, smaller, you know, indie names and things or uh, uh, just lesser known names that they could have brought in to fill the cards in Atlanta. So, you know, you could put you know, like a a up and comers tag match in the beginning. So you didn't have to, you know, use all these people. It's just strange.
0: No, I mean, it's like I said, it's tough to keep things fresh when you're running every two weeks, but they, they did a good job at the Omni. One last result that really caught my eye. Ted DiBiase defeats Bill White. Now, I'm not sure why Ted DiBiase is traveling from Mid South Wrestling, which is where his home was, May 1982, to Atlanta just to wrestle Bill White. This one kind of threw me for a loop. Maybe he was visiting Atlanta for whatever reason.
1: I agree. It had to have been, a, you know, a, a spot appearance, special appearance, or or something like that. I think maybe they wanted maybe wanted to get onto the TV or something. To uh, what was the date of that Superdome show?
0: Superdome was May 1st, 1982.
1: Wow. Okay, so I guess he didn't go onto the TV to promote that. Huh. It, yeah, it either may have been a vacation or maybe some type of a, a negotiation thing or something. You know, I, I that's kind of a weird one-shot.
0: It really is. That's why it caught my eye. Last thing we'll discuss is uh-uh, May 17th, 1982 in Birmingham. NWA champion Ric Flair defeats Terry Gordy to retain the title. That is t- such an awesome match on paper. There is a Ric Flair versus Terry Gordy match out there that's really good. Yeah, that was- but out of all these matches, that is like the number one match I would have wanted to see.
1: Gordy was just amazing, and and Flair was in his prime. That match, I bet you Flair was bouncing around all over for Gordy. I mean, we're talking pinball, pinball action here. That that match probably was, was nonstop. There weren't any, you know, headlocks on the ground in that one. You know, I'm pretty sure that uh, Gordy was tackling him and throwing him around all over and brawling all over. Uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Rick hit the blade, you know, and I, I would have loved to have seen
0: that match. Yeah, it looks like, I mean, both, you know, Two awesome athletes in their prime, and you can afford to have Ric Flair go over clean, which I don't know if that happened; it's not listed. But Terry Gordy is about to turn babyface, so he's expendable as a heel, basically, and you can have a clean finish in an NWA championship match. I'm surprised we we didn't see that more. You know, they
1: could have done it in Florida. They could have done it, you know, more in Texas. They could have, you know, done it in the mid south. They could have, you know, done it. Hell, even in the Omni, you know, they could have done that match quite a bit more. But I, I don't know. What, why do you think they didn't wrestle as much?
0: Ah, uh, basically, because I think the NWA at this point, Ric Flair was more or less a heel champion. He wasn't a ba- he wasn't a babyface, and he kind of wasn't a tweener. And the formula had turned into, you know, Ric Flair against the top baby face. And Gordy generally wasn't a baby face. I know he was about to turn right around this time, but, you know, he never had a program with, with Flair. But that's that's my best guess, Matt. That makes sense. makes sense. All right. The 60 minutes that we do this show is the fastest 60 minutes of my week. I have a couple of other shows lined up, but we are out of time. Matt, I want to thank you for coming on. Excellent, excellent job as, my, as a guest. I appreciate it, Johnny. We got through it. You didn't think we were going to get through it all, but we did. Uh, we we did. Well, we've got one more show from Memphis that we're we're out of time for, but thank you again. I want to thank everyone for listening to this week's podcast. Hey, Obviously, Johnny, could
1: I, uh, could I get into yeah. a, a plug before I go? Plug away, man. All right. I'd like to plug my own podcast, Life and Times with KZ. It's exclusively heard on the When It Was Cool dot com patreon feed i talk about stories for my life uh, i do a, a top five with my girlfriend which is quite interesting we we did our uh favorite country songs last week and the uh the debut episode we did uh you know love love tips that romantic things you could do that don't cost money so you know and i also give a must-see match you know and i just tell stories about my life and You know, it's pretty cool, and you guys definitely need to join the When It Was Cool podcast uh, network. You guys got to check out all the stuff that Carl does. There's all kinds of different shows, way too many for me to list, but check them out. Carl, his audio work's phenomenal. As you know, Johnny Mac, you know that. Also, uh, I'd like to plug my Twitter. That would be KidZombie2000. Hit me up. You know, I can uh, talk wrestling for days. But thanks, Johnny, for coming on. and Lou. How about those Giants?
0: Good thing you don't say, how about those Red Sox? I don't want
1: to talk about that. Oh, no. Hey, people are talking about a fire sale already for your Red Sox, but, you know, it is what it is. But thanks, thank you for having me again, John. It was my pleasure. I had a blast.
0: Well that I I am definitely glad to hear that because I always want people you know to enjoy themselves while they're in the guest chair on Stick to Wrestling and I want to thank everyone for enduring me having going through my spring allergies and not having much of a voice. Uh, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does and this has been a, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Wait, <laughs>